0: I'm going to pick up two of the technologies that Charlotte was just talking about, gunpowder and print, and I'm going to add a third, a medical technology, anatomical dissection. I was talking a little bit about gunpowder last time, as a matter of fact. Remember, I was talking about the gunpowder plot of 1605. So today, let me try to persuade you that gunpowder actually had an influence on English literature. Can you all hear me? Back in the Middle Ages, knights in shining armor were aristocrats. The aristocracy was basically a military elite. That was their main reason for being. The glory days of the mounted knight in shining armor, however, were already starting to come to an end as early as 1415, the Battle of Agincourt, when English longbowmen developed the ability to shoot accurately enough, and this is a little bit gross, I confess, to shoot through the eye holes of the armor (laughs) of the knights in shining armor and kill them at long distance. So that was bad enough, but then along came gunpowder. An ordinary foot soldier armed with a gun could kill a nobleman. It was a very leveling technology. And because of that the aristocracy started losing its raison d'etre. So this is an interesting transitional woodcut. You can see here a battle that's being conducted with the old technologies and the new technologies. You see up in the upper right-hand corner, the knights in shining armor waiting to issue out of the town, sitting on their horses. And they are in an old-fashioned walled city of the sort that we saw the first day. Uh, It has a moat around it. It has a big hole in it, though. Uh, Obviously, something has happened to it there. Just below the knights, you'll see that um, there are people who are manning the, the wall, and they're actually throwing boiling oil in pots over the edge onto the people below who have grappling hooks, and some of them have bows and arrows, the older technology. And then down in the lower left, you have cannons, and they have wicker baskets full of cannonballs, and obviously that's what happened to the wall up there. So you can see that this was the beginning of the end for the knights in shining armor. Now, the English aristocracy had always lived on country estates. Unlike many of the aristocrats on the continent who always lived in cities, English aristocrats had these big country estates. But as their roles started shifting, the monarchy started encouraging them to move into London and to become courtiers in the royal court. (coughs) So, Elizabeth, Queen Elizabeth especially, had a lot of success in changing these fierce noblemen into a class of tame courtiers. So, here's one, leaning on his not much used sword, and courtiers now, instead of killing people with battle axes, were writing sonnets. Bad for England's military glory, good for English literature. The large body of love poetry that these aristocrats produced once they stopped wielding their battle axes always had an undercurrent of resentment to it. They always were a little unhappy to be writing sonnets instead of chopping off heads. And this came out in various ways, but one of the most predictable ways, I think, was it came out in blaming the woman to whom they were writing for, uh, for their own, what they felt was their own, I think, loss of manliness in recent times. And so you get a lot of resentful poetry, and the woman is always said to be cruel and scornful. Also, you get a lot of imagery of Venus and Mars, both in painting and in literature. This is a famous one by Botticelli. Mars, of course, is the god of war. Venus, the goddess of love. He is always represented as having become debilitated by his passion for her. So you'll notice that the little fawns are making off with the rather phallic lance belonging to the god of war, and he's uh, completely debilitated. And she's looking quite uh, triumphant and pleased with herself. Other genres inherited such bitter attitudes towards women. And if you look at the the literature in England of the first decade of the 17th century, you get a lot of resentment towards women, a lot of uh, misogyny and and literary anti-feminism. So I would argue that If you take a long view of it, this whole attitude towards women ultimately owes something to the introduction into Europe of gunpowder. Then there was print. Introduced into England in the 15th century, it mushroomed during the 16th and 17th century. England's first important printer, William Caxton, made a crucial decision to publish only in English. He left the learned books in Greek and Latin to be published by continental printers. And he himself also concentrated on landmarks of English culture. He published a work about King Arthur and his court, uh, A History of England, that classic of English literature, The Canterbury Tales, a collection of English folk tales, and so forth. Caxton's decision to go English gave a huge boost to infant English nationalism. England had been sort of up on the margins in northern Europe, and now they had a wonderful boost to their self-image. So here's a, uh, a theory of mine. You may call it a crank theory, but it is a theory. I think that Shakespeare's methods of building up his plots resemble the technology of movable type. And that is Shakespeare takes prefabricated plot units that are sort of like pieces of type, and he moves them around into different plays. So, for example, the bed trick is found in All's Well It Ends Well. He worked there. He picked it up and used it again in Measure for Measure. He used twins a couple of times, identical twins in Comedy of Errors and Twelfth Night. He used mistaken identity over and over. He used the jealous husband who mistakenly accuses his wife of being unfaithful to him in four plays. Very much the technology of breaking things into small units and then reusing them. Elizabeth Eisenstein, a scholar of print who taught at Penn State years ago, had his theory that print revolutionized reading habits. And what she meant was that when books were scarce, when they were written on vellum, when they existed in monasteries, it was very difficult for the average person to get access to books at all. Uh, You would have to travel long distances to go from monastery to monastery to see a number of books on the same subject. You would have to get access once you got there. You'd have to know how to read to start with, which not too many people did. But when print came along, the ordinary person suddenly had access to many, many books in his or her lifetime. And Eisenstein argues that the whole method of reading changed, and therefore, the whole, she extends this one step further and says, the whole method of thinking changed to a more analytic kind of thinking. Because when you could see only one or two books a year, or even less than that, you tended to read and reread and reread the same book and make notes on it. Make little glosses on it, write commentaries on it, discuss it with your fellow monks, <laughs> um, rehashing and rehashing the same couple of books. But when you had access to hundreds and thousands of books, you tended to, st- and you also had easier access to indexes, which also came in at this time. You tended to be able to pick out what you wanted in each book and find a similar topic in a number of different books. And Eisenstein argues that this led to a whole new analytic kind of thinking. So for example, if you think about Shakespeare, when he wrote Measure for Measure, we know that he consulted between 5 and 8 different printed versions of the stories that went into Measure for Measure. And he could find them all <laughs> without traveling, you know, hundreds of miles to different libraries. He could just go to the bookstalls around St. Paul's Cathedral, as we were talking about the first day. Another thing that facilitated breaking down into small units and reassembling was the fact that books were sold unbound at this time. They were sold in loose pages. The binding of a book, in England anyway, I don't know if this is the same in, in your countries as well, the binding of a book was the responsibility of the buyer of the book. And some people bought several different books over a period of time, and then they would have several bound together. So one way that we can tell what people were interested in and what things they grouped mentally together in the same categories was that they would go and have several books on a similar topic bound together. A reader's habit of shifting from book to book, and this is another theory of mine, has an analogy in the way that plots were structured. Authors broke the tales that they borrowed into tiny units before reassembling them into a play or into another literary work. Not only did they interweave several plots, but they broke the plots down into small pieces before they reassembled them. This was a change. Earlier literature often had several plots, but they were plots that were kind of laid end to end in what we call episodic structure. So you would finish one story. So a knight in shining armor goes out and has adventures. He finishes the adventure with the giant before he starts the adventure with the dwarfs and the beautiful maiden. But once print came along, authors started working almost cinematically in plays especially. They would cut from scene to scene. So you would get, if you were, say, in The Tempest, which we're going to be reading, you would have Uh, A little bit of the Sebastian Antonio scene, a little bit of the Stefano Trinculo scene, a little bit of the Ferdinand Miranda scene, back to Stefano and Trinculo, and so forth. Uh, Let me just show you a couple of charts here. The first one is of a very old play. This shows the movement of scenes in a play by um, (coughs) Terence called The Eunuch. This is a classical Roman play. There are three plots, but notice that even with three plots, the scene changes only seven times in the whole play. Each scene occupies about 14% of the total length of the play. Now let me show you another chart. This is of of a play from 1599, As You Like It. We had some actors doing a bit off the first day. As you like, it has six plots, and it might have seven, depending on what you count as a plot. The average length of a scene in this play is 3.7% of the play's length, so in comparison to 14% for the Terence, Shakespeare shifts from plot to plot 26 times in one play. So if print technology enabled a new kind of intricate analytical reading and even thinking, it also affected, I would argue, the structure of plays. Movable type worked by breaking down into small units for reassembly, and literature seems to have imitated this. Finally, I want to talk about the technology of anatomical dissection which I mentioned a couple of lectures ago as an instance of direct observation of nature. These are a little bit gruesome. (laughs) Patricia Parker has argued that this period had a great fascination with bringing to light things that were hidden, not only the insides of bodies, but also she argues that this goes along with their fascination in discovering new lands, the new world. Other scholars have linked the period's fascination with dissection, with probing of entrails, to a new interiority of personality. This became a great age, for example, of diary keeping. These are bizarre pictures, aren't they, with people displaying their insides. This new interest in the insides of things, in the interior personality, also influenced literature. Now, you'll notice that in one of the earlier dissection pictures, there's a theater and an audience. Actually, the place where dissection took place was called a theater, and it looks very much like the theater in which plays were acted. And conversely, the language of dissecting theaters was used when people talked about plays. So when Sir Philip Sidney was trying to describe what tragedy was like, he spoke metaphorically by saying, tragedy openeth the greatest wounds and showeth forth the ulcers that are covered with tissue. People in our decade, 1599 to 169, had a hard time thinking about spiritual inwardness without also thinking about bodily interiority. Several of Shakespeare's characters speak of penetrating another person's body, either sexually or with a weapon, as a means of deciphering the mysteries of his or her personality. In many literary passages, entrails stand in for an an interiorized sense of self. And in the literature of this period, eavesdropping becomes a major motif. The Spanish drama had a rich tradition of what was called the Miron, who was an eavesdropper or a peeping tom. In English and Scottish literature, male authors often imagined that they were spying on women who were out. Remember that term, gadding. (laughs) Gadding about the town. The Scottish poet William Dunbar imagines that he's an eavesdropper on women's conversation in his poem Two Married Women and a Widow. In England, Samuel Rowlands wrote... "'Tis merry When Gossips Meet." And this is prefaced by a conversation between a bookseller's apprentice and a male customer. And the male customer is trying to decide whether he wants to buy a book about women. And the apprentice makes the sale by promising them that this is his big chance to eavesdrop on women's conversation. There are all kinds of scenes in the literature of this period, usually created by male authors, in which groups of women, usually who have been out gadding and met up with each other at a tavern, chat privately about their latest lovers and their husbands' sexual inadequacies. And as I said, there are a lot of plays where men suspect their wives of infidelity. Iago encourages Othello, this is in Shakespeare, play that we're going to read, to smoke out sexual infidelity by spying on his wife. You might argue that literature in general is all about eavesdropping. Reading about other people's lives uh, allows us to imagine that we're actually peeking into them. But remember, too, that this period in English history was a great age of spying. Remember all the people who were spying on the scandalous Christopher Marlowe? Its literature, then, is especially rich in eavesdropping, as life was rich in eavesdropping. Here, the arts and technology meet again. Both the anatomist dissecting a cadaver and the author dissecting the personality of a character in a play are propelled by an intense desire to peek inside. Thank you.